This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Over 30 cookbooks, a TV star including an Emmy, James Beard Awards, guest judge on Top Chef, star of a PBS Master Series, painter extraordinaire, friend or mentor to every prominent chef over the last 60 years. For God's sakes, he's even a knight of the National Order of the Legion of Honor from France. Now he's... Now he's a viral social media star. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, and I'm good. let's not forget one of the favorites at R.J. Julia. So this sure sounds like it qualifies as a legend. But in a 30-year friendship with Jacques, to me, what is legendary, inspiring, and endearing is his capacity to live life with unbridled joy, sharing that joy with his food, his friendship, or even his enthusiasm for finding a mushroom. <laughs> this, my friends, is what qualifies our Jacques as a legend. So please bring your most enthusiastic welcome to our friend, the legendary Jacques Pepin. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. Yes. I am really a mashed potato maker. That's what, <laughs> that's what I am. So, Jacques, we talked about you being a neighbor. I don't think we've ever talked about what did bring you and Gloria to Madison. Well, uh, I lived upstate New York. We had a house in the Catskill. We live in New York City. And uh, actually, in 1974, that's how I met my wife skiing upstate New York. Uh, and uh, in 1974, actually, I had a very bad accident. I had 12 fractures, broke my back to hip. Gloria said uh, I couldn't ski anymore. I, I wasn't supposed to. Leave. I wasn't supposed to walk again. And uh, she said we have to move in an area by the by the water, closer to the coast. The winter are better too. So mm-hmm. we had friend. I think around here we came, we looked, and uh, we moved here in 1976. You know, so that's a long time ago. Yeah, yeah so and same was, house. The same house. The house used to be a brick factory in the 20s or 30s. The house mm. was very, yeah. <clears throat> so, Jacques, you refer to your life as not some deliberate plan, but uh, a little decision that led to this path versus another path. But yes. two of the decisions to me that seemed pretty determinative, was one deciding to come to the United States. Right, for a year. And <laughs> so what, what were you thinking when you came here, and how did it change so quickly? Because you weren't coming for long. No, but the point is that uh, you have to look at it in the context of the time. Well, most people come to America usually to get a better life, that is, economic life, to get a better salary, or for economic reason or for a racial reason or a political reason or one of those things. I didn't really have anything of this, 
my parents had a restaurant in France. I was in Paris. I was I worked in the best place in Paris. So, but I wanted to come to America. America was and the cities, the, the golden place. And I said I want to go there for a year, maybe two years, learn the language and come back. And uh, I came here, and uh, this is like 60 years later. <laughs> so I'm still here. Uh, yes, it was a different, different life. And I thought that the people were extremely generous and welcoming. They say, oh my God, you come from such a beautiful country. You come, it was, the people were very, very generous and welcoming at that time, probably more than now. Now we tend to say we're the greatest, we're the strongest, we're the best. But at the time people say, oh my God, you come here, such a great country too. So uh, I call people in France, they say, what are you doing there? They don't even have bread, they don't have cheese, they don't have wine there. That's <laughs> what, 60, 70 years ago, which is quite different now. But people were very welcoming and uh, I started uh, working in New York and uh, I started going to Columbia University as well and other things. So, you know, I am an existentialist this way. You know, you do a little decision and that projects you in a different direction and that's what makes your life. And from that direction, from that position, you do another decision, it projects you there and that's what life is all about. That theory of decision that you do, which sometimes don't seem to be very much, but I don't think mm. a lot, yeah. And, but do you think, so for instance, you went to Columbia, you got an undergraduate degree, you got a master's, you studied philosophy and French literature. Did you ever think of that as like a path to a different career? Well, yeah, at some point when I was in graduate school, I was doing a PhD there, and uh, I thought maybe I'll teach literature. And to a certain extent, I come back to cooking because this is what I know the best. This is what I'm the best at. Uh, but uh, Colombia changed my life in many ways, you know. Uh, to quote, uh, I think it was Somerset Mohan who said, you know, it, education is important. Without an education, you're likely to take educated people seriously. So uh, <laughs> that's important, yes. <laughs> yes, I would be very impressed before by someone with a doctorate or whatever. Well... Not anymore now. <laughs> yeah. It's different. But the other decision, and we've talked about this before, but I always find it so fascinating. You had worked for De Gaulle in France, yeah. and then you were offered a position as a chef in John F. Kennedy's White House. Right. But you also had a job offer from Howard Johnson. So I don't know how many of you are old enough to know. How many of you remember Howard Johnson's? Yeah, sure. Okay, all right. And you chose, not everybody looking at it from today's perspective would say Howard Johnson's, the White House with John Kennedy. So we know you didn't go to work for John Kennedy, so why'd you pick Howard Johnson's? When I work with the Gaulle in France, I work with the president in France from 56 to 58, last one with the Gaulle. At that time, the cook was really at the bottom of the social scale. Uh, I had never, I served like Eisenhower, Nehru, Tito, Macmillan. So we were the head of state at the time that I, uh, that I cooked for, that I did dinner for there. Not anyone ever would call you in the dining room for kudo and all that. that no did not pictures with the... No, no, that didn't exist. The cook was in the kitchen, totally dark, there was no one. So on the social scale, the cook was very, very low. You know, any good mother would have wanted her child to marry the lawyer, a doctor, certainly not a cook. You know, so it's a different world altogether. I had never had an interview in France. Television barely existed. 
at the time, but uh, radio, magazine, uh, you know, uh, uh, newspaper and so forth. I never had an interview, it did not exist. I'm saying that to look at it in the context of the time when I was mm -hmm. offered the job at the White House here, I didn't really realize the potential, you know, because the cook was not, as I said, in anywhere. In fact, so I had a friend of mine, I live in New York at the time, a friend of mine who was the, the sous chef at the Essex House, it was René Verdon, and I called him and he got the job. Eventually he came to, uh, and I remember a year, two years after he was there, he sent me a picture of himself with President Kennedy, one with Mrs. Kennedy. I never had any picture with the Gaulle or stuff like this. As I say, it was another world. It was totally different. In fact, I asked him, I asked when I was there, because it started in the 60s, woman liberation, organic gardening, and so forth. Things started to change a great deal. And, uh, but who was the chef before René Verdon at the White House, I asked. And it turned out to be, I was told, a black lady from the South. No one would have known her name, no more than they knew my name or anyone else. This is the way it was at the time. So uh, I did not uh, go to the White House. I want to look at it in the context of the time because of those reasons. I didn't really realize it and so forth. I was in New York. I was going to school. I had friends. I didn't want to change again. And uh, Howard Johnson, I work at the Pavilion in New York with a big restaurant. And Howard Johnson, Howard D. Johnson, the creator, the one who created Howard Johnson was a regular customer. And he hired Pierre Frenet, who was the executive chef, and Pierre wanted me to go with him, which I did. So Howard Johnson was another world, you know, another world of production, marketing, and so forth. I stayed there from 1960 to 1970 for 10 years. When I left in 70, I opened a restaurant on Fifth Avenue called La Potagerie with mass production. Then I opened the World Trade Center with Joe Baum serving, we were serving 40,000 people a day. I set up the commissary. Then I was a consultant at the Russian Tea Room. I'm saying all of that to say I would never have been able to do those jobs as a mm. French chef without the training of Howard Johnson. So Howard Johnson was another world, which I learned about marketing, chemistry of food, all kind of things that I didn't know as a chef. So it was... Uh, yeah, this is the way life Jacques, did you like running your own restaurant? How long did you have potagerie? Well, we had the potagerie for several years, and we have a little restaurant here in Madison, uh, you know, uh, yeah. Gloria's French Cafe. Yeah, I had other restaurants uh, too, but it was after my accident that I moved more towards mm. teaching, cooking, and writing books and so forth, because in a restaurant, you know, 12, 14 hours behind the stove every day, it's pretty taxing. Yeah. So speaking of cookbooks, your new cookbook, which right. we should talk about. Cooking My Way is focused on the economical, the right. practical, and as you say, no motion is wasted, no ingredient is discarded. And right. since your early years surrounded World War II, you come by this frugality, which I know you really are frugal, uh, for good reason. Yet one story always cracks me up, and that is, you're wondering which story it is. Yeah, right. So the story that cracks me up is you had already been in the United States, I think, and you went uh, with your parents and your brothers to Spain. And yes. uh, your mother had a form of, I'll call it roadside cooking. Oh, right. Yes, well, my mother would go to the market and buy stuff, and she was in the car behind us and up in the window, and I could see the she was cleaning uh, string beans or whatever <laughs> through the window. <laughs> yes, and we, we cooked that night and uh, made a fire, and that was, 
That's what the way it was. He made a fire like on the side of the road? Right, right, along a little river or whatever. At that time, there was not even any highway. It was a small road. My mother was a great cook and uh, a very miserly cook. I mean, during the war, she could cook with nothing. But it's that type of woman cooking, you know, more that uh, influenced maybe the most. I mean, in my family, I count 12 restaurants in France through the year, 12 of them run by women. I was the first male to go into that business. My mother had several restaurants, my two aunts, sister-in-law, cousin, niece, they all had Did restaurants. Did they encourage you or discourage you? They were not very impressed with me. I mean, uh, <laughs> when I was with De Gaulle, I remember going back from Paris, down back to Lyon, go see my aunt in Nantua, a small town there. She had a restaurant. I get into the kitchen with her, she threw me out. She said, hey, let's get, you use too much butter, <laughs> get up here, or whatever. So, no, those women were not very impressed. They were not impressed. Because <laughs> no. your dad was a cabinet maker. You could have right. become a cabinet maker. Yeah, I do. And I work on the wood and do that. Yeah, I always work with my hands. So, yeah, it's true that at that time, the, the life was different. You know, I went into apprenticeship in 1949. You know, I was, uh, I was 13 years old. But uh, when I left home, home was a restaurant where my mother was uh, the cook. I was already working in the kitchen several years. So... At that time, we didn't have the telephone. We didn't have a television, of course. Television. We didn't have television. We didn't have a radio. We didn't have the telephone. There was no really magazine, too. So life, life was certainly much simpler and easier for kids as, as now it is. You know? So my father was a cabinet maker. My mother was a cook. So I was going to be a cabinet maker or a cook. <laughs> but about <laughs> that was it. The end of the choice. <laughs> so uh, I never thought of being I don't know, a doctor or something. It was another world, you know. Mm. So life was simpler and easier in many ways, you know. Do you think that the fact that it was simpler as a choice was somehow better? Probably for us it was better, yes. Life was, uh, I remember, you know, we had the little doggy, of course, had my two brothers, uh, our, our day off or out of school. We left in the morning, 8 o'clock, go to go swimming in the, in the river, go up the, the, the wood to get mushroom. We left for the whole day, come back at night. My mother never worried. That was the way it was at that point. Mm-hmm. Now the kid disappeared. I mean, you get absolutely crazy, you know. So, uh, yeah, it was a, a simpler, easier life in a sense. Yeah. So w- one of the things that you've talked about and some of your cookbooks are about is the importance of technique, the importance right. of repetition. And I certainly understand that if you're a chef. Right. But what do you think that notion, how do you think that notion applies to everyday people home cook, yes, becoming right. proficient and comfortable cooking? Right. No, it's a good question. The point is that it does simplify your life. Uh, you know, it makes it easier. I mean, for me, <clears throat> so many years at that time, I don't think I ever had a cookbook before I came to America. we never had a recipe. All the restaurants I work in Paris and different places, you work there, you look, you duplicate, you do exactly, you conform, you duplicate exactly the way it is here. Unless like at the, the Plaza Athene in Paris, we did the lobster souffle, was very well known. Well, at the Plaza Athene, we were 48 cooks in the kitchen. It was a big place. The 48 of us could have done the lobster souffle, you would never have known who has done it. That was the idea to conform and do it exactly the way it is. There was no written recipe or anything like this. It was quite different way of learning. So what you do... For three years in apprenticeship, the chef tell you, do that. You would, ne- 
you would never even have said why, because he would have said, because I just told you, just to the, that's what about the end of the explanation. So you do, you repeat, you do, you repeat, you repeat, you repeat, and you become much faster. <clears throat> that's probably why I can go on television, look at the camera and my hands are working, so I don't really think like about it. Like they're disconnected. <laughs> yes, well, yes, in a sense. So that kind of repeat of technique is very important. When you're a professional chef, it's 11 o'clock in the morning and you have 100 people sitting down at 12. It's not a question of a peeling carrot or artichokes. You have to do three cases of those in like 45 minutes. You know, so the speed becomes very, very important. It is not that important for the home cook, but if you become faster or better to get a great deal of the grudgery out of cooking, it makes your life easier. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And but, you know, for me, to be a great chef, you have to be a good technician first. You know, to have your aunt work fast. And, uh, but I know a fair amount of chefs who are very good technicians, can move fast, and are a relatively lousy cook. The food <laughs> is okay, but not that great. So a great chef will be, for me, a technician, but in addition, something else, like, you know, like, you know, um, you know Thomas Keller or people like that. Uh, in addition to the technique, someone who has talent, someone who has imagination, someone who is good, take it to another level. Mm -hmm. you know, so. I read this cookbook. I, I'm, I marked off like a bunch of recipes that I thought even I could make. Oh, and well, well you sound you I, sound I, pessimistic, I, shy. I, I, no, I know you know me, but no, I know because but you see because of those books, we have Zoom a lot. People interview you Zoom, and they say, you know, on page 32, you have I don't remember that recipe at all. So yeah, but here's my question. So I I. I looked at this book and I thought, oh, here's red cabbage salad with garlic and anchovies, Napa cabbage salary. Um, that sounds good. Oh, this one looked gorgeous. Egg, tomato, and anchovy uh, tree that yeah. looks like a, one of your paintings. But yet, I think like a lot of people, I think about it more than I do it. You know, I think, yeah, I can do this. I mark down these pages. I go to the supermarket. I buy everything. Then everything goes bad, and I haven't made anything. Oh, okay. So does that sound familiar? Yeah. So the, the question is, what do you think a normal person, I'm going to put myself in that category right now, could do to get over that hurdle? Should they plan once a week? Should they, or like to your point, should they take three recipes and just keep making them all the time until they develop a technique? No, the, 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 the technique is not doing the same recipe all the time. Oh. But the technique <laughs> is uh, peeling an onion, right? I mean, working all of the... The, 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 the skill. The, the grudgery, yes, of the kitchen more. And, uh, but basically, you start with easy recipe and, uh, you know, your life you realize that you can do it. In a, I mean, tonight before I came here, I had a, a soup. Why did I have a soup? Because I have a lot of zucchini in the garden. So I didn't know what to do with it. So I did a soup. I had some leek in the refrigerator and I had some pasta after that I cooked. Okay, that took well, probably half an hour. To, mm -hmm. <clears throat> of, uh, Takes that long to dial. <laughs> yeah, right. But uh, yes, I mean, uh, you know, for me also, open the refrigerator and see what you have there. What my wife used to call fridge soup. 
uh, I opened the fridge and I have wilted lettuce and a piece of carrot and an onion. All that goes into a pan with water, salt. So we do a soup, finish it with a handful of pasta or semolina or whatever. And so you do a soup in like 15, 20 minutes. You get into the habit of doing this and it becomes easier and easier and uh, and rewarding in some ways. You know? you know, I do remember, I hadn't thought about this in a long time. You and Gloria were at our house in Brantford for dinner and either you didn't like what we had for our d'oeuvres or something, but Gloria came in the kitchen. Gloria came in the kitchen. She went into the refrigerator, and I was embarrassed because I had cheese that didn't look that good. And she took, like, two or three cheeses, added garlic, olive oil, put it in a little Cuisinart, and it was fabulous. Oh, the, the fromage four, yes. This recipe from my father, you know, yeah, I mean, the idea, and we call it fromage four, strong cheese. And occasionally, uh, I already have a lot of cheese in my refrigerator. Occasionally, every few weeks, you go and scrape the, the mold out of it, too, and uh, two few cloves of garlic, you put all the cheese left over. So it's never the same recipe in the microwave oven. When we used to pound it by hand, now you put it into the, uh, the food processor, you know, like uh, a splash of wine to make a paste out of it, a lot of garlic, salt, pepper, and you have a fromage for you do toast with that or put it into little container, freeze it, and when people come. So yes, we do that all the time. I'm sure I have a recipe for that in there. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if it mentioned the scraping off the mold. Yeah. No, no, I wouldn't mention scraping up the mold. Or if the, if the cheese is hard, like a Swiss cheese, you take a vegetable peeler to take a strip up. And that's it? Mold. Yes. That's it, and you use it. Of course you use it. Of course. Yes. I mean, I, I never throw anything out. Uh, uh, my father would never throw a piece of bread out. Before he threw it out, he would kiss it, and then when he threw it out, it was to give it to the chicken. Anyway, but uh, like I did a recipe a couple of days ago, and I uh, leftover bread, I cut it into little pieces, you know, and I put a bit of milk to soften it, and salt paper on top of it, chopped onion, one egg, beat it and do pancake uh, like that in a skillet with some olive oil and serve it with sour cream or whatever. So, well, very good. You're making me hungry. <laughs> so, Jacques, as I mentioned in the introduction, along come your 80s. You're in your 80s. Did you know that? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. My, so, my late 80s. you've become a social media star. Well, I don't know about well, that. <laughs> so, I, I have, I have uh, two questions. One is, how the hell did that get started? I mean, you didn't... Yeah. Well, actually... Uh, it was during COVID, wasn't it? Yeah, well, there's different things, but certainly since the beginning of the pandemic here, uh, my daughter Claudine, uh, who went to school here and it, uh, in Madison and uh, live in, uh, in Rhode Island, she said, could you do a little show, like three, four, five minutes for people who have left over in your refrigerator to, uh, for Facebook? So we did, uh, we did, uh, that guy over there did, okay, Tom. 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 <laughs> Tom, uh, Tom raises, Tom, raise your hand. Tom Hopkins yeah. is the photographer for all of Jacques' books. And as yeah. you know, the photography in Jacques' books is extraordinary. Yeah, so, we, yay, Tom. We work together. We, yeah, Tom and I worked together for 40 years now, close to, right? So many, many books. And then we decided to do those videos at home for Facebook. And even uh, Christine, his wife, said, I'm not going to the kitchen. It was like three years ago, beginning of the pandemic, they had a mask. So it was just 
Tom and I, and uh, I did the cooking and the dishes, and he shoot with a fixed camera, and then with his, uh, uh, you know, with his telephone on my shoulder for close-up. And we've done so far 320, 320 of those on, on Facebook that my daughter used, and we used to have, I don't know, two, 300,000 people. Now we have 1.8 million people, something like that. Yeah, so, so that's... Uh, and, uh, you know, I have done 13 series of 26 shows with, with PBS, KQED, mostly in San Francisco, for the last 35 years. I'm saying that also to say that each time we did a series, the last series was five, six, six years ago, they already had to raise $1.3 million to do those shows and so yeah. forth. And then we do those shows here. We do like 10 a day. Usually when we do it, we do 10 a day of like four or five minutes. And it costs, what about maybe 400 bucks of, I go to the market and that's about it. So it's totally different type of production now. Of course, I'm, I'm not paying him on it. Yeah, <laughs> that helps. But, but Jacques, you know, the thing that I find interesting about the video, so they tend to be short. And I've actually made any number of things from watching the video because there's yeah. something about watching you right. do it that makes it see. Is that the feedback that you're getting from the yeah, 1.8 right. million yes. people? Yes. Tom can tell you because he gets more uh, feedback probably than I get because uh, in addition to... Uh, I've been very lucky. My daughter created Facebook too. My son-in-law is a chef and teaches at Johnson & Well. Uh, created the Jacques Pepper Foundation. Which we'll we're going to talk about. Yes. And Tom here created the Jacques Pepper art site. I think I'm selling more painting than cookbooks now. So I don't selling. know. So, so you can ask Tom about uh, shooting with me or about, uh, uh, you know, the art site or whatever. Do you want to come here and talk? No. <laughs> and then next to Tom, there is Kelsey. Kelsey is my boss. Uh, she's uh, my, Kelsey is your boss, right? Yeah, she's my assistant, and uh, so cookbook. I had uh, uh, someone work with me, Norma, uh, for thirty-three years, something like that. Yes, and she retired, and Kelsey started what three, four years ago. Yeah, okay. so so that's it. This, this is the team. Uh, it's yeah. a big team. <laughs> so, Jacques, speaking of the team, because I know Tom, I know. Kelsey, how do you, when you decide to do another cookbook, I mean, you've done literally over 30, how do they come together? Well, as I said, I did 13 series on PBS, so each of those series usually has a theme. So the theme, uh, cooking, uh, you know, fast food my way and so forth. So there is, usually I kind of narrow down the knowledge of cooking that I have to have a specific area of food. Uh, I did a book for the Cleveland Clinic. Yeah, they go for cardiac patients, weight loss. So, I mean, that was very narrow to have a very specific area of food. Mm -hmm. And this one here is actually, in the 80s, I had a column in the New York Times called The Purposeful Cook, which was to cook for a family of six for a minimal amount of money. So that's the idea that I took back to this on, on that book. So here the idea was economy in the kitchen. Sometime... I did two series on PBS called Fast Food My Way, and I wanted to show people... I love those cookbooks. Yeah, Fast Food My Way. I wanted to show people in a restaurant as a professional chef, you have a prep cook, you have the prep cook come in the morning, you bone out the chicken, you know, uh, take the, the bone out the fish, slice the mushroom, chop the shallot, wash the salad, too. everything is ready for you. Nothing is ready, but... So 
I come there to the store, someone order a piece of fish, the fish is right there, I grab it, put some shallot on top, some mushroom, a dash of wine, bring it to a boil, boil it, finish it up with a piece of butter. So I do that recipe in three, four, five, six minutes because I have the prep, you know, all of that is ready. So I wanted to show you those two series, fast food my way, uh, how to use the supermarket as a prep cook. So I use boneless, skinless breast of chicken, uh, pre-washed spinach, pre-sliced mushroom. I have a non-stick pan. I brought those package to the, the, the set and I did three or four dish in 30 minutes, 29 minutes, showing you that with, if you use the supermarket as a prep cook like this, you can cook relatively quite easily. It's not probably the least expensive way of cooking. If you buy a whole chicken and bone it out, it costs you less than the buying all the parts. But on the other hand, it's much easier. So again, I have all of those books because I did those different series on television. All were focused on a different area of food. And uh, so this one is Economy in the Kitchen. Yes. So one thing I thought about when I was reading this cookbook, like you have black bean soup, you have New England clam chowder. Right. Are you really still a French chef or are you an American chef with a French <laughs> accent? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> it's a good question because often people would consider me as being the quintessential French chef. Well, as you say, you have black bean soup too. My wife was born in New York City but her mother was Puerto Rican, her father was Cuban. So, you know, I have a black bean soup with, with a sliced banana on top, cilantro, and chopped eggs on top. And then I have a, you know, a, a lobster roll from Connecticut or a chowder too. So probably after 60 years in America, I'm probably considered myself maybe the quintessential American. <laughs> with a French accent. Yeah, I mean, you know, so I don't really... It makes I, it I, sound I don't even better. Think, I don't think of it in terms of being French or being this or being that. I did Ashurasi sushi. I may do something, you know, Spanish or something Chinese or, or Korean. I, I don't really think about it in that sense. The technique remains French, the French technique. And it's an interesting part because those techniques we have in France, the way you slice, uh, I think the way you do a julienne, for example, the name is French, or a duxel, which is a puree of mushroom. Uh, those techniques go back to the mid-17th century. And uh, at and in New York, the school is closed now, but I was the dean of the school, the French Culinary Institute in New York. It's, it closed a couple of years ago. Uh, I was there for close to 30 years. And you have people like Bobby Flay, people like uh, many of the most famous American chefs trained there. So they do French food? Mm. No. But the technique were there. You learn how to poach an egg properly, how to do this, all of those techniques, you know. So uh, that's why they came to the, the school, you know. And so what you mentioned before, the Jacques Pepin uh, Foundation, which was you started in 2016. Right. My son-in-law, yeah. And it quickly became a huge philanthropic force yeah, really in the culinary big. world. So share with us what it does. Well, basically, as I said, I've been teaching cooking all my life uh, in one way or the other. And at some point, my son-in-law, well, I say the chef, but I'm very proud of him too. He went back, uh, leaving the professional kitchen about 12 years ago to enroll at, uh, uh, at Johnson & Wells to start teaching there. And uh, he went on to get his, uh, his master and his PhD. So he's a full professor now. And uh, he's the one who a few years ago told me, you know, you've been teaching all your life cooking. Who do you think you would like to teach now? So we talked about it and I said, you know, people who have been a bit disenfranchised by life, people who come out of jail, homeless people, uh, former drug addicts, 
even veterans. So that's what we do. We do that through community kitchen throughout the country. Uh, I was teaching in New York uh, a few weeks ago, uh, which I didn't even know. I get there, it was uh, the hot bread kitchen called whatever it was mm -hmm. called. And it was only women, I didn't know. But all women from South America or to immigrants. So it's people like this, uh, we through the video that we have, through the video, through the book, through the all of that that we give them and we teach. You see, I feel that I can take someone in the kitchen in six weeks, six, eight weeks. If someone likes to do that, you have to like to work with your hand and so forth. But if you like to work with your hand, you go in the kitchen in six, eight weeks, I can show you how to peel onion properly, to peel asparagus, to poach on eggs, you know, to do all of those basic techniques too. Six weeks later, you're there and you're a partner in the kitchen. Well, if you keep there and keep working, five years later, maybe you're the chef there, you're in charge, mm -hmm. you've kind of redone your life. You know, you make a good salary too. And, you know, cooking is uh, maybe the purest expression of love in many ways. You always cook for someone else. You always give a lot. When you cook, you cannot cook indifferently. You know, you have to give a lot of yourself. So, uh, yes, uh, it's been very rewarding, you know, to work with uh, people. And um, in the foundation, you can look at it on the, on the internet, I think. it's. Well, so one of the things that I was struck by, Jacques, so I watched a couple of videos of people who have gone through the program. There were like right. 10 people in the video. And it was really profoundly touching mm -hmm. to hear the people who, you know, as you said, were getting out of jail, were feeling lost, had, you know, screwed up a couple of times, mm -hmm. and that they were empowered by mastering these skills. And it reminded me that, you know, we say that the American dream is either unattainable or different, but it does feel like this, the work that the foundation's doing and the training, because it's not a million years and it's, it's essentially free. Does it feel that way when you're teaching and meeting these people? Yes. Well, I would say that the, the world of food, our world of chef and all that, People are very, very, very generous, you know, all over. And a couple of years ago, two, three years ago, beginning of the pandemic, my son-in-law, Rolly, said, you know, we cannot do fundraising that much because of the pandemic. So he had the idea, he said, I'm going to ask Chef to, give, to do a video for us, to give the video to the foundation, to train people and so forth. And uh, from Rachel Ray to, to Thomas Keller, to, you know, to Martha Stewart, to whoever. He asked 50 people of the most known name. 50 said yes. Then he asked another 50, they said yes. Wow. Then he asked another 50, they said yes. Then he asked another 50, they said yes. So now we are 200, a video of probably any chef, you know, any chef that you, you would know the name of that chef in one place or another would be there to do the video. And it's interesting for a young chef to see that because it's totally different style. And man, woman, mm. black, well, so, uh, so they gave us those for, for the foundation, you know, to, to teach and train people. So yeah. it's part of the- And the gala raises some crazy amount of money. Well, the, the, the last gala we did, yes, in the September, in the April, we're doing it April again this year. Yeah, we raised eight hundred thousand dollars. That's uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yes, well, uh, yeah, people. Plus your artwork. Very generous. 
Well, he sells my paintings. Yeah, I Tom's doing a good job. I looked at the site today. There were actually a couple of paintings from the book I was looking for. I'm going to talk to oh, Tom. Oh, this one. <laughs> yeah. So the restaurant world has gone through enormous changes in the last yes. number of years right. from, from how chefs used to operate, how people were expected to work. All of that's changed. So, Chuck, what do you think, if anything, has been lost by that change? And what do you think has been gained? Well, I think that it goes back to a certain extent closer to the type of restaurant that my mother used to have, or that small restaurant in France, where the menu, instead of having like 200 things on your menu, you have five or six things fresh from the day, uh, uh, and people who come there end up knowing you, they become more friends, a friend, a, a customer, a client. So those type of small restaurants, which are very, uh, the real neighborhood restaurants, you know, which mm -hmm. we go there. When I was a kid, I remember the customer coming in my mother's kitchen and uh, lifting up the pots and say, I want some of that or some of this. They come into the kitchen. So, you know, a small restaurant like this will never disappear, you know, though, because uh, you work with the people, um, usually it's a restaurant which is not too expensive and so forth. And that being said, also, I mean, great restaurants like uh, Daniel Boulou in New York or Thomas Keller are still going to be there, but it's been m much more difficult in the last few years. Mm -hmm. And the training of people and so forth. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a world which is, I mean, you know, if you want to become a cook, it's rewarding without any question, but uh, you don't make that much money. You work hard and you work Saturday, Sunday, and you work late at night. So it's not an easy job. You really have to love it. Otherwise, uh, it doesn't work. Yeah. So before I ask you the last question, I have a uh, personal complaint, um, yeah, 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 yeah. appreciation, and comment. Okay, so the complaint. So uh, when you had Paco, your French poodle, we loved Paco. So yes. we went to the same breeder right. and we got Max, yes. who's a great dog. And now I have Gaston. Now you have Gaston. Then we got Jimmy, who's like a bridge dog. Oh, yeah. He's And he's he's a good dog. But now we have Zully, also from Bridget. And Zully is not in the personality profile of Gaston, Paco, Max, or Jimmy. He is a bad boy. Okay. So either we're going to bring him over again. We we brought we yeah, brought yeah, him over to play him. with Gaston. Yeah, yeah. So he needs help. Okay. So we're, I'm just registering that. So the thanks is that because of you, our son Edward loves to cook, and you inspired him. Or I ruined his life. You yeah you ruined his life, but you made <laughs> us happy because he makes incredible food. And his wife makes incredible food. So uh, that's a thank you. Well, yeah, this is, you know, there is nothing to bring the family together like food. You know, I'm sure that the, the pandemic caused a fair amount of divorce. But, <laughs> but it, it also brought a lot of people cooking together from what we know with the, with the, the Facebook and all that, you know. And uh, for me, you know, cooking together since I was a kid, uh, the, the food, I mean, there is no place as, as secure, as loving as the kitchen for me. When the kid come out of school, you go into the kitchen to do your homework, you hear the voice of your mother, your father, the clink of the instrument, the smell of the kitchen, the taste. Those tastes that you have as a child there are very visceral. They stay with you the rest of your life, regardless of which part of the world you come from. You know, those tastes are there. 
So the food, I, you know, when Claudine, my daughter, was a year and a half, I hold her in my arm and uh, I'm cooking and I say, okay, allez, mélange, stir it. So she stirred the pot and then so she, quote, would eat it because she made it uh, with her father, you know. And uh, likewise with my granddaughter. She's at BU now, second mm -hmm. year at BU. Uh, and I teach at BU, so I'll see her next month. But uh, she was four years old. She sit, uh, she stand next to me in a little stool. And I thought, okay, give me the salad. You think the salad is clean? Did you look at it? Okay, give me this. Give me a bowl. Let's go to the garden. I need parsley. That parsley. No, test, no that's chive. No, test that parsley. That's chive. That's tarragon. Mm. Then I go to the market. I take her with me. I say, I need pear. Okay, I make sure they are ripe. Did you smell those pear? Those tomatoes, they are not ripe. That established... Uh, you know, a, a, a platform, if you want, or, or a canvas onto which we can start talking. We talk about this, that eventually, of course, we sit down and eat the food and that continues. So for us, the family, the cooking, the kitchen, the being together has always been very, very integral part of uh, raising a kid, integral part of the family. You mm. So Jacques, my last question for you is a more philosophical question. Oh boy. I know you don't like those, um, but who cares? And the question is, one time in a conversation you, Julia Child, and I had, and the question was, who is your favorite person uh, to cook for? And Julia Child named some people. I don't remember who they were. And your answer was for friends, and just as you said, for friends right. and family, because cooking is an act of love. Right. And when I think about you saying that, you're going to be 88 this December. I don't know if you right. knew that. Yeah. And it made me think, is your joy for life and the kind of excitement and curiosity and energy that you continue to have because you've been performing these acts of love for over 60 years, or that's how you're wired? Yes, I would think so. I mean, you know, Claudine, my daughter, when she was 13 years old, uh, she didn't know what she would do in life. She knew that she would never, never do what her father is doing, never do what her mother is doing. Okay, fine. So she went to BU. Uh, I was starting teaching there at the time, graduated in the political science and philosophy, getting to the graduate school, spent a year in Brussels to do a paper on the defense of Europe, uh, whatever, came back here and I was doing a show. Uh, I was doing a theory at the time. I said, you want to do a few shows with me? I said, yes. So she went to San Francisco with each show and one of the sponsors was uh, Kendall Jackson and I became friends with uh, Jess Jackson, the, the owner, mm -hmm. and uh, he told Claudine, so Claudine, what are you going to do after? She said, well, she said, you like wine? She said, yeah. He said, you're interested in wine? You want to work with us? She, he said, yes. So she moved to Sonoma, stayed there a couple of years doing this and... Uh, came back to New York and get the job at the prestige ambassador of Dom Perignon Champagne. Mm. Uh, so all she did was take people to Lutez for lunch, dinner at Le Cirque. And then she went to a restaurant uh, who just happened, give a, the name was Jacques, Brasserie Jacques. Uh, and uh, the chef was her husband now. So she <laughs> met her husband now. So now she's totally 
back into the cooking world so that she was never going to have. So, you know, those things kind of uh, come around and uh, take around. But the, the point is that, uh, for example, she was here this weekend. Well, this weekend we were supposed to play bull and with the weather we did not uh, have the big party. We had a great dinner on Saturday night, just the three of us. We had a great bottle of champagne, an old bottle of Bordeaux, and her husband did some, we had some incredible uh, uh, black cod fish and uh, some lamb. We did a great dinner, which we write down. I have another book to call a book of menu, uh, which you, you have the book of menu. And we started that uh, with my wife and I, you know, I was married 54 years. So uh, in 1970, 69 or no, 67, 8. We started when people came to the house. I bought a book, one of those drawing books too, and I write the menu there and people sign on the other side and say funny things and all that. Sometimes if we have a great bottle of wine like last week, we take the label out to glue it in there. Sometimes we write the music who was playing. And uh, I have 12 books like this at home, 12 mm. books thick like that over 50 years of memory from my mother, my two brothers, many, many, many people who are gone now. So those books of memory are, so we did a big menu. Yeah, uh, I love that. Last weekend, uh, I mean, Saturday with my, my daughter and my son-in-law, just the three of us. In those books, many times I had a book at Tete-a-Tete, -tete, tete -tete, my wife and I, we had a bottle of champagne, some caviar too. We wrote the menu down, just the two of us sometimes, not only... So those are great memories that we have. And because of that, I did a book of 80 drawing of menu uh, that, that you have for people. You give that to a kid. Uh, we gave it not too long ago. Someone who just got married, so they put the marriage in it. Well, a year later, they had a kid. You know, when the kid is born and the first, uh, you know, the, for Christmas, Easter, the first, uh, the first uh, anniversary. And, and all right. So, you know, you realize that uh, those books are... Uh, you know, my whole life in those books of memory, you know. Mm. What am I doing here talking about that? <laughs> what, what and you, you didn't even what, answer my damn question. question. <laughs> I don't know what your question was. Well, in closing, um, and I say this even though my husband is in the room, is I have such love for you, Jacques, Thank because you. I think you remind me and millions of other people of all the good there is, all the good there can be. And a lot of it is by our having dinner together. Yes, so. that's true. You know, I mean, uh, I think in uh, 1824 at the Congress of Vienna, Henry, uh, Louis XVIII, the French king at the time, uh, Talleyrand was the minister of uh, exterior minister. And he, he, the king told him, I have to give you more advisors. And I need more cook. I need more cook. And that was the idea to do dinner and two. And I've seen that when I work with the president and all that, to bring people together, sit down. And even if there is dissension and the controversy, usually around the table, if you choose your wine carefully and so forth, <laughs> <laughs> there is discussion and two, but in a more civilized way and so forth. So yes, cooking is important to bring people together, not only at home, but especially in our era of, uh, of polarization and so forth. Mm -hmm. We have to bring people together more around the table. All right. <laughs> well, Jacques, with all of you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. 
JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at RJ Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. I can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was just the right book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code podcast and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.